Welcome to the Day One Podcast, the only podcast where practitioners in research and insights learn what's hot and what's not in the world of market research. This is your host, Hannah Mann. Hello, I'm Hannah Mann and welcome to the Day One Podcast. This is episode number 10. So today it is a real pleasure to be joined by Jamie Unwin who I have been very lucky enough to work with in the past. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of information on Jamie. So Dr. Jamie Unwin is the Commercial Insight Officer at Nanoform, which is an innovative nanoparticle medicine-enabling company. A 20-year pharma industry veteran, Jamie and his teams have provided insights to maximise patient, physician and payer access to 23 new drug launches. Jamie is a recognised opinion leader in the business insight world and has held senior roles at GlaxoSmithKline, GE Healthcare, Janssen, and most recently was VP Enterprise Insights for Biocon Biologics. In addition to his role at Nanoform, Jamie is also a visiting lecturer at Imperial College Business School London, where he teaches classes on advanced analytics in healthcare. So welcome, Jamie, to the podcast. Thanks so much, Hannah. Pleasure to be here. So now I've read that out, and I've, I'm sure I've only touched on you know very minor parts of your career there because I know you've been you've been in the industry a while. Thinking back over your career, actually, what are you most proud of of everything that you've done? What really stands out for you? I'd say two things. I think looking outside, it's bringing new medicines, right? I think when I started my career quite some years ago now, it was always my ambition to try and touch the lives of patients. And I think the new drug launchers, well, they've they've helped me achieve my mission, right? And I think you get the most feeling of warmth. You get the most buzz when you have a chat with a friend or somebody who you meet who then mentions that they're taking one of the medicines that you've helped launch. And I think that for me is is a real positive and something that I'm very proud of. So I think when I look outside, it's probably the new launches. But when I look inside, what really drives me is the development of people. And I think as well as doing a lot of market research, I've also had the real luxury, the real pleasure of either mentoring or managing over 50 insight professionals in my time and seeing these people progress, many of whom are now more senior than me, which is great to see, has been something that I look back on with a great amount of pride around it. I'm hugely passionate, hugely, huge advocate for the function as a whole, the insight function and the value that it can bring to big organizations. And it's been really pleasing seeing people grow within these structures that I've been able to build. So actually, how did you get into the insights industry? Because I say it's, it's, it's not a, a career that people usually know they want to do at the age of 15, is it? So how did you find your way into, into this career? You're absolutely right. I used to think market research was something that the guys with clipboards did in the streets, right? So my doctorate is in molecular biology. I was a microbiologist and I was lucky enough in my final year to be industry sponsored. So I spent a year of my research shearing plow in the US. And that's when I think I really caught the bug. That's when I caught the the farmer bug. And as a microbiologist, it's all about bugs, of course. Um, and so that's when I started to understand that actually the science was really interesting, but the commercial application of the science was equally inter- interesting. So as I finished my PhD, I looked around looking for 
industry looking for consulting type opportunities that could use my skill sets of somebody who was very willing to learn, who was very green, who knew a little bit about science, a little bit about drug development, who could go on and work on early stage projects. So I, I joined as an analyst, a team called Bridgehead International, who were in Melton Mowbray, a great bunch of people who, who were really terrific in bringing a fledgling researcher on board. And it was my job to try and help in a lot of commercial due diligence assignments for, for banks, for funding bodies, for VCs. And that was when I was physically picking up the telephone myself, calling customers, calling physicians, calling payers, and asking them about their perceptions of technology. So I guess I moved from researching at the bench in Petri dishes to actually researching by calling people within the industry and people within the environment to understand how they were going to use medicines. So I guess it was from one form of research to another. And I guess I, I really enjoyed the intellectual challenge of learning something new every day. But I also enjoyed the fact that it really was research, that there was a quantitative basis behind what I was doing. It was fact-based. There was a lot of qualitative work, but a lot of quantitative understanding as well. So that really gelled with me as a person, as an analytical mm. person, and intellectually as well. So as you have been in the industry a while, and as you say, you know, you've probably seen a lot of change over the years, you must have, and I ask everybody this question, you must have a funny story from our industry. So at least one, I know some that you might not be able to share because they're too embarrassing. <laughs> have you got your funny story? I've heard people of, you know, getting on the wrong planes to the wrong cities, of all sorts of different things. So I'd love to know what yours is. <laughs> so many so many it's going into work working in insights is a lot of fun right and you work with some very creative people and you have some great stories probably my favorite one was central facility work group central facility work we were doing in birmingham probably i don't know 15 16 years ago now and it was a group of 10 people all sat in the same room i was behind the one-way glass and the moderator, who was excellent, said to this group of people, look, there's some drinks over there. Help yourself. Just maybe one drink. Yeah. And then come back to the group. He did a wonderful Red to a full Yeah. One drink a... only. <laughs> so yeah, to be fair, they only had one drink, Hannah. And then right at the very end, just as he stepped outside and said, I'm just going to go and speak to the sponsoring client now. I'll be back in five minutes. I could see in the one-way glass. All of them descend upon the drinks bar, take all of the bottles and hide them in their coats. <laughs> and when the, researcher, when the researcher came back in, there was just this scene of 20 people with their arms crossed, hiding bottles of wine and bottles of beer under their coats as well, not knowing that both of us were watching them on every step. So, and, and bless him, he was obviously too, too British to say anything about it. So they all went away with a few extra bottles as well as their honorarium. <laughs> Yeah, I think I have been on the receiving end of moderating groups where with actually with doctors, where they've perhaps had a little bit too much of the wine during the group. And towards the end, you're like, oh, how am I going to just remove this bottle of wine from the table without them noticing? But yes, yes. I, I think that sort of has sort of been phased out now over the last sort of, sort of maybe four or five years where actually alcohol is not really served so freely. But, you know, maybe that maybe that's a bad thing. People are a little yes. bit more open when they've, they've had a drink or two. You're probably right. <laughs> So, okay, shall we move on to our main subject of discussion today, which is Room 101 and the three things that you want to get rid of from our industry forever. So you can put anything you want in. You know, it can be a way of working, a methodology, how we think about things, how we approach things. It could be something about the industry at large itself. Absolutely anything at all. So 
as you know, at the end of it, I'm only going to let you put one thing into Room 101. So you've got to argue quite strongly for the thing you feel most passionate about. So without further ado, shall we start with your first item to go into Room 101? Yeah, and I think I just touched on, by the way, it's difficult just having three, right, Hannah? So being able to narrow it down to one is going to be even more difficult. So what would I say is my first one? And we just touched on this. One-way glass in central facilities. So the entire concept of having a unidirectional piece of glass to separate a sponsoring industry (laughs) professional from a respondent is bonkers. Because it's the ultimate elephant in the room, right? And I fundamentally think it constrains the quality of the insights that we can get from depths. And I think if we ask ourselves, why do we actually do central facilities, right? Why do we bring people out of their day job into these wonderful buildings and feed them sandwiches and a glass of wine? It's to de-stress them, right, from their Mm day-to-day workload. It's to physically remove them from their external possibly biasing colleagues and other stimuli as well. And it allows them to focus and to share their thinking, their learnings, their recommendations in, in a safe environment. So so what do we do? We sit them down in a room <laughs> opposite a single with other no, person. With no windows usually as with well. With no basement. windows, no <laughs> windows, almost angle poise type lamp in their face with a piece of one-way glass in front of them. And we say, well, look, don't worry about this, but there's, there's a client behind that glass. So just, just be normal. Just please talk normally. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, can you see that camera up in the top corner? This is live streaming to 30 of their colleagues in the US who haven't been <laughs> able to get here as well. So it's truly bonkers that it actually achieves the very opposite of why we do central facilities. So yeah, I would throw one-way glass and it would probably shatter on the way down, Hannah. But one-way glass would be the first thing that I would throw in. But do you think, though, that after a bit of time, people do sort of forget it's there? Because we've all seen the respondents who, at the end of the discussion, as they walk out the room, stop to do their hair or their makeup in the mirror (laughs) because they've forgotten there's someone behind it, Um, or even worse than that. So, you know, I know it. Initially, it's sort of a bit off-putting, but do you think that people just forget about it and kind of relax into the discussion after a while? It's probably proportional to the amount of wine they drink during the interview, right? Yeah, 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 I've seen that as well. But I'd say, I have to say, more often than not, I to the point where a respondent will physically turn to the glass and talk into the glass and speak mm. to speak to the sponsor rather than actually speak to the moderator. And that's when yeah. you know that it's all gone a little bit wrong, when the moderator is just this, this conduit between you, the glass, and the respondent. So I guess what's the alternative? So I guess since lockdown, we've all to virtual central locations, where it's all done, you know, obviously on um, the equivalent of Zoom. And I guess that's the alternative, because if someone wants to watch the research, and they're not in a, a real-life viewing facility with a, with a one-way mirror, then we have to do it virtually. So what do you think, which is kind of better, because that has its pros and cons as well, doesn't it? What do you think about that? You know, I I put one-way glass in, maybe it's more the central facility as a concept, right, that I don't really, Mm -hmm. doesn't really resonate brilliantly with me because all of the reasons why we do central facilities is around the de-stressing, enabling people to focus. I'm a massive fan of observational research. Because you get that stress, you get respondents, you get the bias, right? You get Mm -hmm. all of the things that you're actually designing out of the experiment when you bring people into a central facility. And that's the good stuff. 
specifically when you're asking people about prescribing decisions, about stress points in the management of their patients, their patient's journey. If you physically observe them in that environment, I think you just get more color and I think you get more depth. A lot of the, and we can't, observational research, of course, is super duper expensive and we can't always flip it out for IDIs, particularly if we have a particular single hypothesis that we want to test. But yeah, for me, leaning more towards observational research, more passive methodologies to get the answer out that you're looking for is the direction that I'm tending to go at the minute. Okay. So here's a question for you. I've heard real mixed reviews then. The future of research, are we ever going to go back to the viewing facility? Obviously, we've got observational research, which you say, you know, sometimes it's too expensive. You can't always do it. We've got virtual research. Is there still a place at all for face-to-face in your two with your one-way mirror with the clients in the back room? Or do you think that that is dead? I think if not dead, it's in atrial fibrillation and it's dying. Right, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah I, you know, and there's a happy medium, right, Hannah, which is, the, which is the IDI in the context of the stress and the distraction that they have. So hospital IDIs, mm-hmm. going to the place of work where mm-hmm. these people are, we need to understand the checks and balances to make sure that we can do that without being overly burdensome on healthcare practitioners and patients' lives. But I think taking the question and taking the the research methodology closer to the respondent physically, emotionally, has got to be a good thing for getting a good understanding of the challenges that they have. Mm. And actually, that's a good point, because when we've done virtual TDIs sometimes, I have actually interviewed physicians who have been in their sort of surgical scrubs in like the operating room or from their office talking and sort of moving around. And actually, in some ways, you know, we could use that more and ask more observational or ask them to show us things as well as just tell us things, which perhaps we're sort of missing a bit of a trip there with uh, that approach. I guess we've got to be careful with confidentiality and what have you. But Hannah, you've just reminded me of another funny story that I have to share as well, which is a, which is in this <laughs> position. So when I was at Bridgehead, my first job, one of my first projects was on replacement heart valves. And it was back in the days yeah. of cold calling to try and get experts to respond. And I called one of the most senior heart surgeons in India. Okay. And his number was on the website. Mm-hmm. And I gave him a call and a lady in India picked it up and I said, uh, may I speak, please speak to, to this gentleman? I said, yes, certainly one minute. And then I hear doors opening and footsteps on corridors and banging and then hear an Indian gentleman say, hello. I say, hi, it's Jamie here from Bridgehead. I'd love to take a little bit of time here to talk to you about uh, your attitudes towards heart surgery and valves in particular. And his response was, absolutely. Can I call you back in three hours? I've got my hands inside somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so, so his, his colleague was actually holding the telephone up to him whilst he was performing heart surgery. So I have oh physically been in it. Oh I have word. physically been involved in heart surgery, but probably not in the way that he wanted me to be. So that was yeah. good fun too. It's those moments where you're interviewing a doctor and they get a call, and you're like, "I know that that is way more important than what we're talking yeah, about. Please exactly. go and save that exactly. patient's life, or do whatever it is you've got to exactly. do." Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so right, so that's your first item into room one hundred and one. What is your second item? So I'm going to put, and this is not going to make me very popular with possibly a lot of industry professionals on the call here, but people who push back, insight professionals who push back on assigning a return on investment to their research, so ROI pushback. 
Because it's the easiest thing to do as an insight professional to say, oh, we do market research or we build forecasting models or we do X or we do Y. We can't actually have or show a return on our investment on that. So if you give me a million dollars, I will just use that. That's a given. And mm-hmm. for me, that's like fingernails down a blackboard. There's this perception that that industry has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to spend on primary market research, and that's no longer the case. So everything has to be justified. And I think increasingly, all of us in the industry have to assign an ROI. Otherwise, I don't think we'll exist in 10 years. We have to show the value that we're adding aligned with the organizational KPIs, or more specifically, aligned with the organizational or the departmental output measures. I think in, in, in times gone by, my activities, the activities of my team and their, their bonuses have been, have been aligned with the number of activities they've done per year. So the number of pieces of market research conducted mm-hmm. successfully or compliantly, or the number of forecasting models that have done. But I think increasingly in a world by which everybody who sits in a similar chair that I do in the pharmaceutical industry comes to work to try and touch the lives of patients, if we're not showing that as an insights function, we can, through our activities, touch more patients or touch them in a better way, then that is people that aren't making those sorts of arguments will find their market research dollars disappear in the future. And I, I think that for me, people who push back an ROI are not doing the best things for their functions or for this discipline that, that I, I really love as a whole. So yeah, when people push back an ROI, that's a real fingernails down a blackboard thing for me. So a couple of questions here for you. First of all, why do people push back, do you think? And then secondly, and probably most difficult question, how on earth do you measure it? Because that's got to be hard, right? Yeah. But you're the analytics guy, so you can probably tell me better than, than anyone else. <laughs> and it's, uh, the, so the, first of all... <laughs> yeah, it's line of sight. Okay. Why do people push back? Yeah, so why do people push back? I think, first of all, it's about line of sight. So within... Insights functions, we make recommendations. So we observe, we analyze, we synthesize insights, and we make recommendations based on those. And there's often the feeling that, oh, those, that recommendation might not be picked up. And once it's picked up, a business decision maker, a field force representative might not act on them. And so it's actually too many hands shakes away from me being able to directly affect the outcome measure. And so people hide behind mm-hmm. that. And that's why they say, okay, I've done my activity. There you go over to you. And that in terms of development of what we see from great insight professionals is that they champion and push and drive their recommendations all the way to the handshake. So all the way to the decision maker, all the way almost to the Mm -hmm. customer. And they're pushing, if they do a new segmentation, they're pushing the field force saying, why aren't you adopting this? What can I do better? Why isn't the segmentation working? Where is it working better? And those are the sorts of behaviors that great insight professionals do. And so they are closer to the commercial or the patient upside. So yeah, so that passive nature, historical passive nature of just doing activities as now has to be replaced by people that drive decision support solutions into their customers who are internal and increasingly external as well. Yeah, that was the first question. What was your second question, Hannah? I forgot that. How do you measure it? How, how do you measure it? Yeah. yeah. Patience. 
It's all about patience, right? And even in the absence, it's difficult in some aspects if we're aligned, if we're medically aligned in such professionals or supply chain aligned or commercial aligned. We can't always drive towards the dollar upside. But what we can always do is focus on the value that we can bring to a patient. Now, that patient might be through getting more medicines to patients, so it might be an increased share. Okay, so by doing a piece of market research, Mm -hmm. we might be able to say we can actually unlock a new segment of opportunity. We can have an additional five to 10% of share. And by the way, I'm going to do a piece of research which will uncover that, et cetera, et cetera. Analytics professionals, that's really hard, right? Because if you're involved in deploying a new structure, a new forecasting model, then you have to ask yourself, well, how am I actually going to impact patients there? But you are. Because by having a better model, you have a better idea of your demand, a better idea of your supply. You have fewer stockouts. You make sure that every patient who needs your medicine gets it within a particular time. So locking all of the KPIs back to a patient ambition actually works really well. And that's what's something that uh, I've always tried to instill into colleagues within my teams and with peers as well, is that we should have an aligned patient ambition for all of the work that we do. The Day One podcast is brought to you by research and insight agency Day One Strategy. Day One Strategy combines technology and human intelligence to help healthcare companies better understand their customers' wants, needs and behaviours. To find out more, visit our website www.dayonestrategy.com or get in touch at inquiries at dayonestrategy.com. So this is probably, um, there's not probably an obvious answer to this question, but then ultimately, how does this benefit the business? So if you're measuring this, you're you know improving the lives of patients or you're adding value to patients, how does that come back to benefit all the people within the business? Yeah, and it's, it's typically a revenue upside, yeah, or a reputational upside. You, you can measure the hard dollars off the back of it, but the hard dollars that you can assign to a particular insight activity are really hard to gather because it's a function of financial accounting, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. the, the one thing you can have a direct line of sight to is how you impact a patient. But yeah, the, the downstream measures of impacting measures in ter- uh, of impacting patients internally around financial metrics, compliance metrics, cost of good metrics, all flow from the back of that. So one last question on this one. What do you think, if we did measure the ROI and all the research we did, and we did it very effectively, what do you think it might say about some of the types of research projects that we do? Do you think that some would just cease to exist? The ones which would be most at risk would be the truly exploratory ones, okay, where you're moving into Mm -hmm. a new therapy area completely and just understanding. And that, I think, is one of the challenges where you could probably seek to reduce your spend in that area and look at other more cost-effective methodologies. The truly exploratory stuff would be challenged to do that. What I do see coming forward, Hannah, and this is the really smart agencies who come forward with with risk-share propositions, and they would say, okay, Mm -hmm. you're wanting to do a piece of exploratory work here, or you're wanting to do a piece of insight work here. We are not going to charge you for this work, or we will charge you a cursory amount. We'll cover our costs. But we'll agree what the baseline of your business is now, and any upside that we achieve, we will take a pre-agreed proportion of that upside. And that, for me, is really brave, really brave, because that's insight professionals on the agency side saying, we believe in this discipline 
of being able to grow your top line, being able to grow the impact you have on patients. And we will that will that helps them drive their own internal quality because they have a lot of skin in their game outside of just physically conducting the research mm-hmm. themselves. And as a internally within the industry, because we have cost-constrained research budgets, of course, there's very little or, or comparatively smaller upfront investment to get that research off the ground. It's the share of the upside which comes with time. So I love that sort of approach. When people engage me with those conversations, those are the ones that always get a meeting. So do they exist? Are they found sort of, are they put forward to you very often no, or is that no, quite an unusual thing? I know thing? three of them. Yeah. I know three of three people who have proactively reached mm. out to have conversations like this. That's interesting. I can imagine. I can imagine one of the hardest uh, issues to overcome with that is the the contract with the lawyers. I can imagine have a lot of fun over that in terms of the, the clauses and the terms and the conditions and, and understanding what the true baseline is. Yeah, and pre-agreeing that baseline yeah. that is a difficult one to get off the ground. But if it's in an area that's that's important, they typically work really well in what we call established brands. So brands that don't have a big promotional presence that are just flatlining. Mm-hmm. That even in the absence of a promotional infrastructure are are delivering the same year on year on year. They have a good carryover. Then that's when you can go in and say, well, you've been at this level for the last five years. You're not planning any additional investment. We can come and and re-energize this by identifying three or four insight-driven inflection points in the prescriber journey. Let's share the upside. And that's typically where it works well. Interesting. Very interesting. So let's move on to your third point. So what is the third thing you would like to put into Room 101 today? I'm going to put Intent to prescribe as a metric. <laughs> so, okay. And why? What's wrong with that? It because it's a BS <laughs> metric, Hannah. <laughs> it's, it's, um, don't get me wrong, the concept of asking a physician or trying to understand how likely they are to prescribe a given target product profile is an important one, right? And we need to understand that. Mm-hmm. But the way that we ask it is all wrong because I think that, that prescription decision is probably the most complex that a healthcare team has to make, right? It's based on environmental considerations within the hospital, affordability or or access considerations, which might even be at the national level, the payer mentality locally, patient objections, compliance challenges that might be perceived, the local Mm -hmm. hospital constraints, system delivery, the ability to get the medicine to the patient and into the patient. And we typically, it's usually a commit to phase two or just before a pivotal trial where we'll give a half-arsed TPP and say, what's the likelihood to prescribe that? (laughs) And there'll be a single metric come back (laughs) and that metric gets plowed into forecast models and it becomes uh, a stamp and almost a, a noose to hang the researcher with when you don't hit the numbers. So yeah, so it's just overly simplistic as a measure. And I think it's, it's one which has been leaned on too much. I've never seen, I've seen analyses where people have retrospectively looked at what current market share is or intent to prescribe is, sorry, what current prescription behavior is mm-hmm. versus what the research said yeah. the ITP was. And it wasn't even close, right? It was probably a hundred percent out. As in, I, I think the number, the actual number was about 20 and the ITP research was calling about 40%. So, so it was a long way out, a long way out. Or we just don't do them, right? We don't do the retrospective analysis because yeah. it's uh, one of those unwritten questions. So why do we keep doing it? Because you're right, we do do this all yeah. the time. 
why do we keep doing it? Why have we not thought or you know pushed to do something different? Or is it just sort of habit? Just that we're like I've got a habit. I in think there it's habit because of the way it. It's a habit, and it's easy. And the alternative is technically really challenging. But there is an alternative, yeah. right? Yes. Uh, are you a Netflix fan, Hannah? Mm-hmm. What are you watching at Netflix at the minute? Um, what are you watching at the minute? N- nothing at the moment, actually. Now having a bit there of a break because I think I did too much at Christmas. So, but yeah, I do like a bit of So Netflix. when you are watching stuff, right, there's a recommender system in Netflix because based on all of you and your family's historical behavior, there's people like you have always watched functionality, right? Or you people like you will also mm-hmm. enjoy this. And it recommends to you. And that's based on all of your historical interaction behavior. It's based on a very complex machine learning model based on artificial intelligence. And it's smart, right? Because it's typically correct. I, I watched Breaking Bad for for years, for months. It felt like years. And now I'm recommended o- now I'm yeah. recommended Ozark. And you know what? I'm watching Ozark because I love it. Yeah. Right. So and the let's use that analogy analogy and bring that into the pharmaceutical industry. We have terabytes of historical prescribing data, right? Years gone by. The real world evidence data mm-hmm. catalogs that there are out, out there now. What it needs in order for us to get a really good, accurate, probably scenario-driven ITP metric is to line up all of those data sets, is to understand what the individual target product profile was for assets as they came forward in that setting and understand how Mm -hmm. physicians use them without physically asking the question. So in a passive recommender-based way, understanding what people like them will also do with a TPP that looks like this. And to answer your question, why don't people do that? Because it's really hard. But those people that reap the benefits of setting up their systems to do so, of looking at their own, of investing in in AI-based systems, in machine learning-based systems internally, are really reaping the the benefits because they're spending less money on IDIs, they're spending, they're, they're having greater forecasting accuracy, which means they have better inventory management levels, they're able to serve their market demand more quickly, they're able to right-size their organizations because their forecast models are more accurate based on the demand that they're expecting. And the ROI on that, there we go, ROI, is an easy one to assign. But even even though the ROI Mm. is easy to assign, it's not a straightforward or an easy thing to do. So the alternatives are there. Why do we still use it? Because it's dead easy and it gets a task off our desks. Yeah, I'd love, I'd just imagine that in the future, the doctor sort of saying, "Yeah, doctor, you prescribed this last month. You might also yeah. like this drug, or you might like yeah. this drug. Would you like to but try we it?" See, we see. <laughs> I, I don't want to name the company that I was working with, but recommender-based systems now are really finding their way into the field force representatives as well. So, understanding that, okay, if on a Friday evening, Doctor X sends a message into a medical information channel in the industry, then then a field force representative or a medical colleague, if it's a medical request, will be served up a message on their inbox on Monday saying, Dr. X messaged this. We know from Dr. X's historical behavior that he's also going to be asking questions A, B, and C. So please proactively go back to him with, with these questions. And so it just helps the industry become more, they're seen as being more of a partner in helping them understand the answer 
they're able to be more proactive, they're able to be smarter, and they're able to help them more on their on their journey towards better usage of the medicine. So recommender systems are really coming to the fore now. And there've been some mm-hmm. big investments. If you just look through AI-based Salesforce engagement or AI-based engagements, there you will find probably four or five big hits in Google of people who are really moving forward quickly on this. And it gets rid of the segmentation study with four different segments, which are the same segments yeah. every time. And now you're actually just marketing to a segment of one, completely tailored communication, knowing exactly what they want, when they want it, and reacting or proactively responding to them. It's N equals one segmentation, right? At at, um, Nanoform, we call it nano-targeting. Okay, so we're a B2B business, but trying to understand the customers that we want, we try and identify where a molecule is in its development journey. We use our own artificial intelligence engine to try and understand whether we can impact that molecule. And we are internally based on the people that we have, we understand the types of conversations that a person will want to have at that time. So it's really personifying the molecule. It's really having a deep and well-respected two-way conversation with the owner of that molecule molecule and it works really well so yeah i think n equals one segmentation is the way forward my only question on that would be that that sounds absolutely amazing from certainly from the company's point of view and also from the doctor's and patient's point of view however knowing what it's like as a consumer to be targeted in that way it can also be a bit weird a bit freaky when computer systems sort of second guess what you want before you want it or follow you around, you know, when you've spoken something near to your phone and suddenly your phone's, you know, sending you things popping up talking about, I don't know, curtains, whatever you were talking about with your friend the other day. And I guess we'd have to just make sure that it didn't get to the point where it was so tailored that actually it creepy. became creepy. a bit yeah. creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I think particularly in, in healthcare where they want to feel like they are independent thinkers and not being sort of you know influenced by yeah. technology even though obviously we all, we all yeah, are i completely agree with you hannah and there's going to be a role to play for our industry in the future in understanding how the user experience is with these systems okay so what's the level of creepiness mm. that can be tolerated before it actually gets scary and this also needs to come with the right checks and balances around data security and ethics and compliance. So it's a real emerging area to me, and we need to get it right because we only really have one chance to do that. Yeah. I guess that would be a good problem to have right in the future if we're at that point where we have so much information that we know what they want before they do. I think prob- probably a long way off there yet with physicians yes, maybe. I think you're right. But it's an exciting journey ahead, right? And you look at the explosion of real-world evidence data, even in the last what, five to 10 years, it, there's a lot of data out there just sitting dusty waiting to be analysed. And I think there's some beautiful insights yeah. that can drop out of it. Brilliant. Right. So I think now is the time to draw some conclusions and have a look at what we've tried to put into Room 101. So first of all, we had the one-way glass mirror in the viewing facilities because whilst we're trying to sort of not you know, sort of de-stress people and create a natural environment actually by putting them in these rooms or doing the exact opposite, ROI pushed back on market research. One, because it's quite difficult to measure. People also, you know, sort of the line of sight that you talked about, people kind of you know, not, not really wanted to have their research measured in that way. And then finally, intent to prescribe metric, because as we all know, really what people say and what people do are two very completely different things. So I think uh, what I would put into Room 101, I'm going to have to say, I think the intent to prescribe metric. 
I tend to agree with you. I know I'm as guilty of doing this as anyone else, so I'm not saying that I'm any better than anyone. But I think the alternative and what's coming in the future, as you've described it, is really, really exciting. And I think if we look at that, that seems really optimistic and really, really, you know, futuristic from where we are now. So I think if we put intent to prescribe metric in the bin, it'll encourage us to move more towards those future, was it always a nano targeting as you yeah. described it, which I think is a brilliant <laughs> concept. <laughs> what, what would you put into Room 101? Do you agree? I think I wanted to throw the glass in. But I'll go with ITP. I can live with the glass as long as I'd never have to reach research an ITP metric again. Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right, Hannah. I think that's the one. It, it motivates the industry to change. It would motivate the industry to change to a better place. Yeah, I agree mm. with you. I think one way glass is perhaps going that way anyway. I don't think we need to put it in the bin because I think it's it's halfway there already. <laughs> <laughs> I think the nice thing... Yeah, maybe that one we don't have to worry the about. The nice thing about moving this direction as well is that ROI becomes a really straightforward thing to measure once you become more analytical in your approach mm-hmm. as well. So maybe by getting rid of this and moving towards recommender-type systems to understand intention to prescribe, then ROI may become de rigueur and something that's automated in the future. Indeed. Just before we finish, I know that there were a couple of other things that you said you wanted to very quickly throw into Room 101. So I'm going to give you a minute to talk me through. I think it was forecasting and professional respondents, I think we mentioned. Forecasting in silos more specifically, Hannah, yeah. When we have a commercial forecast, a supply chain forecast and a financial forecast, all of which are set activity, typically in December. That has to read out at the end of March, mm-hmm. where everybody is encouraged to go away and build from the bottom up their own viewpoint. And of course, the, the commercial forecast is built from patients and market share. The supply chain forecast is built around scenarios of whether we can we can we can serve a particular level of demand. And there are lots of fallbacks and safety measures with that. And the financial forecast, of course, is is built by what we've promised to the markets. <laughs> and so typically yeah. what happens. Is that the three teams will go away and then come back in March and have a huge argument about whose forecast wins. And then right at the very end, one very senior, senior vice president will say, well, actually, this is your forecast. <laughs> and everybody goes reverse engineers. Yeah, and you okay. I, I have to say, particularly within organizations <laughs> I've worked in more, more recently in the past, the getting together and harmonizing forecasting approaches is really moving forward, but which is why siloed forecasting is going in and not forecasting as a whole. So that would be my first one. And the second one as well is, is the concept of the professional respondent. Hannah, I'm sure you've seen these ladies and gentlemen, right, <laughs> who despite saying in the screener that they haven't uh-huh. done research for the last six months, still turn up to research every time. <laughs> yeah, you saw Call them the night them before. Yeah, and you're like, how come you're here again? <laughs> if we could, and I do wonder just how much of our yeah. industry direction is probably built on the ideas of just a very small number of people who turn up time and time again to central facilities mm. and sit in front of the one-way glass. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do, I do think, I do think that actually virtual research has ah, helped okay. to change that because we're not just going to London. London, Manchester, Liverpool and Milania, all the same cities as before, we don't have to go anywhere. So I do think that that has changed a lot, but I totally get your point. I've seen those guys and and ladies in the past. Yes. Brilliant. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I hope you have a good rest of the week and thank you very much. Thanks so much, Anna. You've now heard from our guest, but the big question is, what would you put in Room 101? 
We'd love to hear your views. Get in touch at inquiries at dayonestrategy.com and let us know your thoughts on where our industry is heading. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to get notified when future episodes are released.